0: hey guys tonight on california house radio i'm going to be reading about celebrating yuletide in different lands i'll be right back grab your popcorn and snacks Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I didn't even think I was going to make it to the show tonight. I mean, that's how close this went. I was uh, doing a doctor's appointment today for my eye issue, and I got there around 2.30. I didn't get seen until around 4.30, so I knew I was going to be pushing the envelope for the show tonight, and uh, I'm glad I shot that intro yesterday because I was able to reuse it, but, I mean, it was really close because then after the doctor's appointment, doctor's appointment, of course, I had to make a run to um, the pharmacy, and then they couldn't get my stuff done, and so I went went ahead and grabbed some, went next door to Safeway and grabbed some items shopping, and then they finally got the stuff done in a rush. So I didn't really step through the door until 5.45 p.m. So here we are, and I hadn't teased the show yet for for you guys or anything like that, so I got home and just teased up the show and did all that stuff and thought, well, I can't do an intro, so I might as well use last night's intro, and that's what I did. Welcome, everybody. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Hots Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 straw up and down the state. Uh, and uh, that means if you have a paranormal, team, we can get to you. It might take us a little longer because uh, California is a big state, but we will get to you. We do have psychics on staff who can do a reading with you over the phone to see what may, what may or may not be going on in your home or business. And if it is paranormal, in, most, in the majority of cases, they can settle that energy down for you And uh, until we get out there. It usually doesn't take more than one or two days for us to get out there. Okay, that being said, let's get this show on the road here. If you're watching from Facebook, and a lot of you are, and you haven't done so already, please hit that follow button. Also, during the show, if you find it in your heart, you like what you uh, hear and see, please be sure to hit those likes, those happy faces, those hearts. Because uh, what that does, that puts us up higher in the uh, FYP, the, 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 the computer's brain at Facebook, and it puts us out to more people. Same thing with YouTube. If you haven't subscribed yet on YouTube, uh, you should check us out. There's more than 800 videos over there, all different topics. I don't like to cover the same topic all the time. So you can check us out over there. Same thing. If you, you know, give me some thumbs up, subscribe. Please subscribe. It's free. Uh, you know, and, and all that good stuff with happy faces. That puts us up on uh, their FYP, so they distribute us even, even more. Okay? Uh, I encourage you to chit-chat the chat room as well, because that helps us with the What is going on with Sally here? Here we go. Uh, <laughs> because that puts us out there as well. Anyway, you can find us on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, California Haunts Ghostly Events, and Sacramento Sears, S-E-E-R-S, as in Greek, Sears. We are on TikTok as California Haunts. We're on Instagram as Ghosty Gal, all lowercase. We are on Twitch as Cal Haunts. And we are over on Meetup as California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team okay last night when we left off we were reading from the christmas tradition book and we're just about done with that so i think we're going to finish that off tonight and in the case that we finish before before 7 30 what i you know before our hours up what i will do is i'm going to switch over to the sylvia schultz uh scary spooky christmas winter book okay so we'll be uh i'll be moving over to that shortly um you know if like i said if if, if we were not run out of book to read, okay? I'm pretty sure that this Yuletide book is just about done, so we're going to go ahead and do that. Let me see. Okay. Yeah. But, man, I've, I've been on a dead rush, and now I'm stuck at least for the next couple of weeks, I've got a small eye ulcer, so at least for the next couple of weeks or so, I'm stuck putting an eye drop in my eye every hour that I'm awake. And tomorrow I've got a follow-up to see if this stuff's working. So, yeah, so it's been an exciting day. Tomorrow will probably be an exciting day. You know, and about tomorrow night uh hopefully we'll get out there tomorrow night uh, hopefully it will be for the seven thirty p m show so uh, we won't air after seven thirty uh if not then we're de- I'm definitely gonna get us out there on Saturday. you know it just depends how things go with uh my producer's schedule and my schedule if we if we get everything jived together. I wish I could drive at night with my glasses, but I can't so uh that's where the, where all that's at okay getting into the book here we go and we were last talking about christmas in in the americas and please remember that we get in here
1: hello what happened what happened
0: ah there we go and please remember that these this book was written in 1908 so there's going to be terms and stuff in here like we ran into that last night that was okay back in 1908 that may not be okay nowadays okay so let's just remember that okay i'm going to try when i get to those parts i'm going to try and use today's terms in them and sometimes as i'm reading i don't see them until after i fly over them you know when i'm reading so just bear that in mind and you don't need to you know turn me into facebook police or youtube police or tiktok police or, t- or twitter police for racism or anything weird like that okay so just bear that in mind 1908 the d- different time. Different way people had old stuff. So here
1: we go. Alas, that Christmas
0: on the Mayflower, excuse me. Alas, that Christmas on the Mayflower was the last the Pilgrims were to enjoy for many long years. Other shiploads of people arrived during the year. And in 1621, one Ye Day called Christmas Day. Ye Governor called them out to work as was used. Okay. But ye most of his new company is already starting, right? But ye most of his new company excused themselves and said it went against their coincidences to work on 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 ye. So ye governor told them that if they made it matter of conscience, he would spare them till they were better informed. So he led away ye rest and left them. But when they came home at noon, when they came home at noon and oh and he this is what I'm dealing with from their work he found them in ye streets at play, openly, at play openly, some some pitching ye y- ball and some as stoolball, never heard of it as such like sports. So he went to them and took away their implements, and told them that told them that was against his conscience, that they should play another's work. If they made ye keeping oh my God, if they made ye keeping of it matter of devotion, Let them keep their houses, but there should be no gaming and reveling in these streets. Since which time nothing has been attempted that way, at least openly. And thus ended the last attempt at Christmas observance during Governor Bradford's many terms of office. The Massachusetts colony that arrived in 1630, put this over here, settled in and around Boston. Believed that Christ's mission on earth. As the savior of man it was too serious a one to be celebrated by the fallen race. He came to save, they considered it absolutely wicked for anyone to be lively and joyous when he could for any okay for okay when he could not ugh, lost when he could not know whether or no he was doomed to everlasting punishment. Besides that, jollity often led to serious results. We're not Uh, we're we're not in the jails of old England of of repletion the day of Christmas. It was wisest, they thought, to let the day pass unnoticed. And so, only occasionally did anyone venture to remember the fact of its occurrence. Among the men and women who came across the ocean during succeeding years, there must have been many who differed from the first calling in regard to Christmas. For in May 1659, the General Court of Massachusetts deemed it necessary to enact a law that whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas, or the like, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other way upon any such accounts, as said, shall said, su- shall be subject to a fine of five shillings. For upward of 22 years, it remained unlawful in Massachusetts to have a Merry Christmas. There were no pretty gifts on that day to make happy little God be thanked, search the scriptures, seek wisdom, prudence, hope, or charity. However, Santa Claus had emissaries abroad in the land. In December 1686, Governor Andros, an Episcopalian and a representative of the king, brought about the first concessions in favor of the day. He believed in celebrating Christmas and intended to hold appropriate services. The law enacted by Parliament in June 1647, abolishing the observance of the day, had been repealed in 1659, and Governor Andros knew he had the law in his favor. But every meeting house was conscientiously or stubbornly closed to him. So he was forced to hold service in the town house, going with an armed soldier on each side to protect him from the goodwill exhibited by his fellow townsmen. He held services that day, and it is believed to be the first observance of Christmas held under legal sanction in Boston. The great concession was made by the old South. Congregation in 1753 when it offered its sanctuary to the worshippers in King's Chapel. After that edifice was burned for them to hold their Christ- Christmas services. Okay, for them to hold it, Okay, I'm sorry, after that edifice was burned, for them to hold their Christmas services. It was with the implicit understanding that there was to be no spruce, holly, or other greens used on that occasion to desecrate their meeting house. Little by little, the day was brought in a favor as a holiday. But it was as late as the year 1856, while Nathaniel P. Banks was governor, that the day was made a legal holiday in Massachusetts. The good Dutch fathers, true to the teachings of their forefathers, oh yeah, check this out. I opened up my, I opened up my present of WD40 today. See, I can go back and forth and not make everybody mental. The good Dutch fathers, true to the Pamela. The good Dutch fathers, true to their teachings, I see some people in the chat room, I cannot see you, my glasses are useless, but I see you there, welcome. The good Dutch fathers, true to the teachings of their forefathers, sailed for the new world with the image of St. Nicholas for a figurehead on their vessel. They named the first church they built for the much-loved St. Nicholas and made him patron saint of the new city on Manhattan Island. Thanks, many, many thanks to these sturdy old Dutchmen with unpronounceable names, who preserved to posterity so many delightful customs of Christmas observance. What should we have done without them? They were quite a worthy people, notwithstanding they they believed in enjoying life and meeting together for gossip and merrymaking. Christmas was a joyful season with them. The churches, when quaint gabled houses, were trimmed with evergreens, great preparations were made for the family feasts, and business was generally suspended. The jolly old city fathers took a prolonged rest from the cares of office, even ordering on December 14th, 1654, that, quote, as the winter and the holidays are at hand, there shall be no more ordinary meetings of this board. That's the city corporation. Between this date and three weeks after Christmas, the court messenger is ordered not to summon anyone in the meantime, end quote. Sensible old souls, they, old souls, they were not going to allow business to unsurp their time and thought, during this joyful season, the children must have their trees hung with gifts, and the needy must be especially cared for, and visits must be exchanged. So the city was left to take care of itself, while each household was busy making ready for the day of days, the season of seasons. What a time, Hoss Frost had polishing up their silver, pewter brass, and copper treasures. And opening up best rooms and newly sanding the floors and in devious intricate designs. What a pile of wood was burned to bake the huge turkeys, pies, and puddings. What pains the fathers took to select the, roast a- the rosiest apples and the choicest nuts to put in each child's stocking on Christmas Eve. Fortunately, children obeyed the injunction of scripture in those days and despised not the day of small things. How fortunate, It was that there were no trains or other rapid modes of conveyance to bring visitors from the Puritan colonies at the season. There was no possibility of any of their strict neighbors dropping in unexpectedly to furnish a free lecture, while the Dutch families were merrily dancing. The Puritans were located less than 285 miles distant, yet they were more distantly separated by ideas than by space. But a little Leaven was eventually to penetrate the entire country and the customs that are now observed each Christmas throughout the Eastern, Middle and Western states are mainly such as were brought to this country by the Dutch. Americans have none of their own. In fact, they possess but little that is distinctly their own because they are a conglomerate nation speaking a conglomerate language. Makes sense, right? According to the late Lawrence Hutton, quote, our Christmas carols appear to come from the Holy Land itself our christmas trees from the east by way of germany our santa claus from holland our stockings hung on the chimney from france or belgium and our christmas cards and verbal christmas greetings or, or our yule logs our boars heads our plum puddings and our mince pies from england our turkey is seemingly our only contribution
1: let us add the squash pie End quote.
0: these customs which have become general throughout the united states varying of course in different localities, are being rapidly introduced into the new possessions, but they are engrafted on some of the prettiest customs observed by the people in former years. In Puerto Rico, give you an idea how old this book is, Puerto Rico is P-O-R-T-O, okay, Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico on Christmas Day, they have a church procession of children in beautiful costumes, which is a very attractive feature. The people feast, dance, attend midnight mass on Christmas Eve, then dance and feast until Christmas morning. In fact, they dance and feast most of the time from December 24th until January 7th, when not at church services. On Twelfth Night, gifts are exchanged, for as yet Santa Claus has not ventured to visit such foreign climates, climate, so the children continue to receive their gifts from the Holy Kings, however, under the shelter of the American flag. The Christmas tree is growing in favor. In Hawaii, so far as possible, the so-called New England customs prevail. Interesting. In the Philippines, even beggars in the streets expect a christmas present which they solicit in good english so from alaska to the island of uh i say after this to
1: tulia i'm trying the smallest of
0: america's possessions didn't even know it existed yuletide has observed in a similar manner there's probably a new name for that island i'm sure Yuletide has been singularly connected with important events in the history of the United States. In the year 1776, Washington crossed the Delaware on Christmas night to capture nearly 1,000 Hessians after their Christmas revelries. A few days later, December 30th, Congress resolved to send commissioners to the courts in Vienna, Spain, France, and Tuscany. And as victory followed the American leader, followed the, American leader the achievements of this Yuletide were declared by Frederick the Great of Prussia to be, quote, the most brilliant of any recorded in the annals of military action, end quote. The year following, 1777, was probably one of the gloomiest yuletides in the experience of the American forces. They lay lay encamped at Valley Forge, sick and discouraged, destitute of food, clothing, and most of the necessities of life. It was on Christmas Eve, 1783, that Washington laid aside forever his military clothes and assumed those of a civilian, feeling, as he expressed it, quote, relieved of a load of public care, end quote. After Congress removed, after Congress moved, okay, removed to Philadelphia, Marsha Washington, Mar- Martha Washington held her first public reception. See how lovely these glasses are, right? In the executive mansion on Christmas Eve, when, it is stated, there was gathered the most brilliant assemblage ever seen to America. At Yuletide a few years later, 1799, the country was mourning the death of the beloved father of his country. In later years, the season continued prominent in the history of great events. The most notable of these were the two proclamations of President Lincoln, the one freeing the slaves, January 1st, 1863, and the other proclaiming the unconditional pardon and amnesty to all concerned in the late insurrection. On December 25th 1868 and may the peace then be declared with the people forevermore
1: this is titled the voice of the Christ child
0: <laughs> the earth has grown cold with its burden of care but at Christmas it's it always is young the heart of the jewel burns lustrous and fair okay? and its soulful full of music breaks forth on the air when the song of the angel is sung it is coming, old earth, it is coming tonight, on snowflakes which cover thy sod. The feet of the Christ child fall gently, fall gently in white, and the voice of the Christ child yells out tells out with delight that mankind are the children of God. Oh, see, oh the sad and lonely, the wretched and poor, the voice of the Christ child shall fall, and to every blind wanderer opens the door of a hope which he dared not dream of before. With the sunshine of welcome for all, the feet of the humblest may walk in the field. I'm trying to get a rhythm on this. Where the feet of the holiest have trod. Thus, this is the marvel to mortals revealed. When the silvery trumpets of Christmas have pealed, Okay. That mankind are the children of God by Phillips Brooks. Okay, that is the end of this book. So we got through the Christmas traditions book. So give me a second here. I'm going to move back into let's see if I can get out of here. Uh try to get me. I don't want to have to restart
1: the laptop. I had trouble with getting the internet off a couple of days ago. I not restart this. Yeah, I don't wanna how can I get out of here? Desktop, new tab. Ooh, okay. Because I had trouble getting this out of here. Let me see what I can do. Just hang on. It's an old tablet, and sometimes it doesn't. There we go. Okay, let me wait for it to come back, and let me get my screen back. Hello.
0: Yeah, okay. It's incognito for some reason. Okay, let me get back an Amazon Kindle now so we can continue with the Sylvia Schultz book. So that was a neat read. I really like history. So that really. I love every second of that and like i like i mentioned last night there's a lot of ghost stories in this gutenberg stuff so uh we're going to be reading a lot of books out of that because they've got like some old old timey ghost stories and stuff and that's what we can do every sunday i see pamela's in the chat room let me check the chat room back let me open up the chat room so i can see what you guys are saying how's that let me get this bigger i know i'm on screen so let's see Ah, michelle's here welcome 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 michelle glad, glad to have you let me check out the chat room real quick is this way i can like jerry's here hot dog michelle oh i agree i think they were afraid i think they were afraid of of, of, the, of the pagan roots yep i agree i agree i agree okay let me get small again so i can this is kind of nice now because i can actually read read you guys's comments okay let me get back in here so now we're going to be doing the uh book by sylvia schultz the uh, spirits of christmas the dark side of the holidays anyway getting back really quick that was a great book yuletide and to think it was written in 1908 Fantastic. So again, there's a lot of these books that are out of copyright that are over at that Gutenberg site. So I'm going to be able to pull from them. In fact, the other night Nancy and I were kind of going through this stuff to see what was in there. And there's about 20, 30 ghost stories, you know, books of ghost stories. So yeah, so that's going to come up. So that's coming up. We're also going to be reading from Adam Maria Manolo's latest book as well. Okay. But I am going to be reading from the from the from those ghost stories because I mean it's, it's going to keep us going for a while. Okay, so let me continue here, and let's make sure I'm in the right spot, because it's just... Okay, we're continuing with the ghost stories and the spooky stories in uh, In the Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. This one starts, is the title of The Messenger of Donner Pass. Okay, a trucker named Mark L. shared an eerie experience he had that stretched out over two Christmas seasons. In late autumn of 1996, Mark's father had gone to a friend's house for a visit. As soon as he walked into the house, he clutched his chest, dropped to the floor, and died of a massive heart attack. The police called Mark and asked him to go take care of his mother. Mark rushed to his mother's side and made all the necessary phone calls. As evening faded into night, family began to gather at the house. Mark needed to go out for cigarettes, so knowing his mother now had the comfort of family around her, he left the house for a quick trip to the gas station. As he pulled into the gas station parking lot, Mark said he just had the strange feeling that his father's soul just wasn't where it should be. He couldn't explain the feeling, even to himself. Mark got out of the car and started to walk to the convenience store. Quote, spare some change, mister? Can I maybe wash your windshield for ya. Uh, end quote. The bum looked harmless enough, but Mark wasn't in the mood for much interaction. Instead, he pulled out a $5 bill, gave it to the guy, and asked him to pray for his dad. The bum happily took the fiver and started praying, loudly, just to make sure things were copacetic. Mark gave the guy a good, hard look. It was then that he noticed the bum's eyes were penetrating were a penetrating shade of blue, quote, so piercing blue that they could stop you in your tracks, end quote. Mark thanked the guy for his prayers and asked his name. The bum replied, I'm Irish. Shaking his head, Mark went to the convenience store, bought his cigarettes, and headed home. Several months passed. The encounter with the bum stuck in Mark's mind, and every time he went to that gas station, he kept an eye out for the guy. A few years later, Mark saw the man again. Mark asked the guy if he remembered him and if his name was Irish. Quote, yeah, I'm Irish, but nah, I don't remember you, end quote. Mark realized with a jolt that the guy's eyes were brown, so deep they were almost black. They were not the startling blue Mark had seen the night his father had passed away. But that was only part of Mark's story. Much of Mark's driving took place On I-80, Interstate 80 In all kinds of weather Mark grew up in California So he didn't have much experience With driving in snow and ice Once though, he was teamed with another driver Who managed to jackknife the truck During a blizzard in Kansas After that, Mark had a healthy respect For driving in winter conditions Christmas was fast approaching And Mark was doing short hops From Chicago to California Making his way home for Christmas On December 23rd He pulled into the Alamo truck stop for a break. Donner Pass was before him. Now you guys know what Donner Pass, right? What's up with Donner Pass here? Okay. got to remember the Donner family uh, was coming into California, and they had to cross this pass during winter, and sure enough, and that would be my luck, sure enough, uh, there was a horrible snowstorm, one of the biggest in the century. And they got trapped, and the rest is history to where they had to survive. And they ended up um, eating their dead to survive. So, yeah. Christmas is fast approaching, and Mark was doing short hops for calicut the Alamo for a break. Daughter passes before him. Mark was toying with the idea of trying to get a little sleep before tackling the pass, but he was so exhausted. He knew an hour nap might turn into eight hours of solid sleep. A storm was blowing in, and Mark still wasn't sure what his next move should be. He climbed down from the cab of his truck and headed in to use the restroom. Mark was walking about 10 feet behind a group of other, of other drivers when one of them turned around and spoke to him. Quote, if you're trying to get home, you better go over the pass right now. End quote. Mark didn't know this guy. and He had never talked to him. But the man had the same brilliant blue eyes Mark had seen the night his father had died. Mark turned on his heel and went straight back to his truck. He got the engine and headed up Donner Pass. The CB crackle was incoming weather reports as Mark drove. He made it all the way through the pass and stopped at a rest area when he was safely through the mountains. As Mark pulled out of that rest area, the snow was falling thickly, and he heard over the radio that Donner Pass had been shut down and it had stayed closed. It had stayed closed for a day and a half. He had made it through the pass just in time. If Mark hadn't followed that unknown trucker's advice, he'd have been stuck at the truck stop over Christmas. As it was. He made it safely home to Los Angeles after delivering his final load. Quote, My mother had a smile for the first time on Christmas since my father had passed away the Christmas before. End quote. Mark has never seen anyone with blue eyes quite like that again, but he is always on the lookout for them. To this day, quote, To this day, if I see piercing blue eyes like that, I listen to the words being spoken. End quote. House of Plenty. Madison County, Illinois, in the southern part of the state is a quiet rural area in 1879 timothy groves built a home for himself in the town of highland a hundred years later in the early 1980s ken and judy ernst rented part of the house for use as a small bakery within a decade that would be the dog in the background within a decade judy's baked goods business had become so popular the couple bought the entire house for a while They lived in the house and ran a small restaurant business, but by the end of the 1980s, the restaurant had grown to fill the entire building, and the couple made their home elsewhere. The House of Plenty restaurant is thought to be haunted by the spirit of the original owner, Timothy Graus. The story goes that Graus hosted a party in his home in honor of the town's early Swiss settlers who were planning a trip back to Switzerland to visit their families. The plans for a joyful reunion turned into tragedy, though. The ship carrying the traveler's sank, claiming the lives of over 300 passengers according to chad lewis who we've had on the show okay writing in Illinois guide to haunted locations some people believe that after losing so many of his friends in the sinking timothy growls continues to wait for their return the restaurant building is notorious for having things mysteriously go missing one day judy ernst was in the kitchen baking an angel food cake she left it on the counter to cool several hours later she came back to find that The cake had vanished. Neither the cake nor the pan was ever found. Well, you might be thinking to yourself, a missing cake—that's not so bad. Someone left an angel food cake unattended in my kitchen for several hours. Of course, it would be. Oh, if someone left—sorry. Of course, it would be gone. But try this on for size. Someone who had once lived in the home stopped by for a visit. She asked Judy if she ever had ever had anything go missing, and Judy mentioned the story of the cake and the pan. As she spoke, the visitor's face blanched a ghostly white. Then the visitor shared a story of her own. Years before, her mother had been boiling potatoes on the stove in that same kitchen. Her husband had come home, and mamma went into the living room to greet him. She gave him a quick kiss, then came immediately back to the kitchen to check on the food. The mother was stunned to discover, on her return, that the pot of boiling potatoes had vanished into thin air. The dining room of the restaurant is the scene of a strange phenomenon that happens every Christmas.
1: I should have paused there. Sorry
0: about that. The fireplace in the dining room with several tables for guest dining arranged near the hearth. Every year around Christmas, Ken Ernst would notice a small pile of charred pipe tobacco on the corner of one of the tables. How it got there was a mystery, until the former occupant of the home brought in an old photograph of the Grouse family, the home's original owners. Standing in the photograph was a young man who was smoking a pipe. He was identified as Rose's son, and it is believed that he liked to spend his winter evenings in that very room smoking a pipe while sitting next to the fireplace. The House of Plenty is now closed, and the good smells of home-cooked food no longer fill the air. However, as Christmas approaches. Maybe the scent of good pipe tobacco still lingers in the dining room, and Timothy growls his pipe loving son, still knocks his spent ash onto a handy table
1: near the fireplace. The USS
0: Constellation. I have read a lot about this ship, and I have seen people, I've had terrible friends who have gone aboard this thing. After America won independence from England, the new young nation had miles upon miles of coastline to protect. Ships were built to form America's first navy. One of these was USS Constellation, one hundred and seventy five feet long, with three main masts. She was launched in Harris Creek, Maryland on september seventh, seventeen ninety seven as a thirty six gun frigate. Her first captain was Thomas Truxton, and he started the ship's bloody career with a bang, quite literally. On february fifth, seventeen ninety nine, the constellation got into a battle with the French frigate La Insurgente, I think that's how La Insurgente. I'm trying to say it like Spanish, <laughs> in the West Indies. The French ship was captured, but in the heat and terror of battle, a sailor named Neil Harvey deserted his post. Truxton found out and ordered a lieutenant starlet to run Harvey through with his sword. After the battle, Harvey, Harvey, wounded but still alive, was tied to the end of a cannon and blown to pieces. Oh, kissing the gunner's daughter. And blown to pieces on Truxton's orders as a warning to other sailors not to slack off on duty. I think that's where it comes in. Uh, That's saying, kissing the gunner's daughter. Okay. Don't look that up. Don't hold me to it. Okay. Not surprisingly, Harvey's ghost is one of the most frequently seen on the ship. He's even been mistaken for a costume tour guide. The Constellation saw many missions throughout her long service in the U- U.S. Navy. She provided support for land troops fighting Seminole Indians and distinguished herself in the War of 1812. She tussled with slave traders and Barbary pirates, and sailed as far as West Africa, China, and Hawaii. In 1845, the ship sailed to the Navy Yard at Norfolk, Virginia for a complete overhaul. She had been given a new stern in 1829-1830, and the hull of a wooden ship needed to be rebuilt every 16 years or so anyway. We don't know how much of the original ship's material was left after the 1845-55 rebuild, but it was enough to keep the ghost hanging around. The Constellation's rebuild was finished in 1855. The ship was downgraded from a 36 gun frigate to a 22 gun sloop. The Constellation was the last ship in the United States Navy to be powered completely by sail. The Navy was moving towards steam power. In 1893, the ship docked at the Naval Station in Newport, Rhode Island, and served as a stationary training ship until 1914. Then it set neglected for decades. In 1940, Franklin Franklin D. Roosevelt, recommissioned her as a flagship of the United States Atlantic Fleet. When the money for that project dried up, the ship was towed to Boston. In 1953, a group of historically-minded Maryland citizens raised funds to bring the constellation home to Baltimore. By September 1955, the ship had come to her final home, and that's when the ghost stories began. Several ships, including the submarine Pike, were moored nearby. Their sailors told stories of strangeness of the constellation, odd noises, spook lights, ghostly shapes, and misty figures walking on her decks. By December 1955, Lieutenant
1: Commander Alan Ross Brown Brauham,
0: B-R-O-U-G-H-H-A-M, had heard many of the stories. He decided the situation warranted an investigation. He called up a friend of his, who was a photographer, and invited him to bring his camera abroad. Aboard, abroad. <laughs> They set up the camera facing the ship's wheel. Then they waited. At exactly 11:59 and 47 seconds p.m. on that cold December night, Browham smelled the faint odor of something like gunpowder. Immediately after that, he saw the translucent, bluish-white phantom of a 19th-century U.S. Navy captain. The phantasm wore gold e- epaulets and a cocked hat, and was slightly bent at the waist reaching down with his right hand as if to draw a sword. At the click of the camera shutter, the ghost vanished, but Braum had his picture. Many witnesses to the spirits of the ship report smelling gunpowder in the air just before the apparitions manifest. Captain Truxton especially announces his impending presence with the acrid tang of gunpowder, and, uh, and all of the Const- Constellation spirits seem to be most active around midnight, especially in the week between Christmas and New Year's Day. There are several ghosts on board to keep Captain Truxton and Neil Harvey Company. An 11-year-old boy served on the ship from 1820 to 1822 as a surgeon's assistant. In 1822, he was quartered by two sailors on the orlop deck and stabbed to death. No one knows why. Another sailor, overwhelmed by the harsh life at sea, hanged himself. Then there is the spirit of Carl Hansen, a night watchman, who worked on the Constellation in the mid-20th century until an alarm system was installed in '63. Hansen is the only spirit on the ship who didn't die a violent death and is believed to haunt the ship because he actually is happy to be there. His ghost has been seen enjoying a game of cards on the lower decks. In 1964, a Catholic priest came aboard for a tour. No one from the Maryland Naval Militia was around at the time, so he went below decks on his own. He was met by a guide who seemed very knowledgeable about the inner workings and terminology of the ship. After the informative tour, the priest thanked the guide and headed for the exit. As he was leaving the ship, he ran into the other guides. He complimented them on finding such an enthusiastic volunteer. The guides exchanged nervous glances.
1: Quote, there's no one below right now, one said. quote. The men
0: all rushed down to find the intruder, but no one was there. The constellation at rest now in Baltimore Harbor is a prized artifact of American history. And apparently, some of her crew are still celebrating the holidays late at night walking the decks of his grand ship. I have seen, I I heard about that little kid too. Okay. Lord Combermere returns. Great stories. The second Lord Combermere had a favorite chair in the library of his grand estate. Combermere Abbey. He was so fond of the spot that he was photographed sitting comfortably in that chair while his funeral was being held four miles away. There were two Viscounts that held the title of Lord Combermere. Combermere. Why am I having issues with that in the 19th century? The first Viscount was cavalry commander in the early 1800s. In 1817, he was appointed governor of Barbados. It was this Lord Combermere that had a curious connection to the supernatural. He was governor at the time that moving coffins were causing great consternation in the Chase family. The Chase family vault was a beautiful crypt in the burying ground at Christ Church Parish in Barbados. Made of coral, carved stone, and concrete walls two feet thick it was sealed with a massive slab of blue marble the vault was it, it,
1: the vault was. It, i can't say this word you couldn't
0: get into the vault we're just gonna leave that i don't know why i'm having trouble with this word that's why it was such a shock to find that the coffins that had been placed reverently in the tomb were found to have been rearranged with violent force Whenever the vault was opened for another burial, the coffins of Chase family members were found thrown haphazardly around the vault, instead of remaining where they'd been placed and replaced with tender care. Lord Combermere, the governor, had heard the unsettling stories and decided to put a stop to the nonsense. He ordered the vault opened. He had slaves, a sprinkled sand on the floor, to capture the footprints of any intruders, human or animal. Then, when the vault was closed, he pressed his governor's seal into the fresh cement. Two years later, he returned to inspect the vault. The outside of the tomb was as rock-solid as ever, but inside, all was chaos. The six coffins had been tossed about like toys, and the stand on the floor was completely undisturbed. The second viscount, born in 1818, went by the splendid name of Wellington Henry Stapleton Cotton. In 1891, when this gentleman was visiting London, he was run over by a carriage and suffered injuries to both legs. The sturdy 73-year-old recovered well, and six weeks later he was able to get around with the aid of crutches, but a blood clot developed in Lord Combermere's heart, and on December 1st, 1891 he dropped dead. The Lord's funeral was held on Sunday, December 5th, at St. Margaret's in the town of Renbury, four miles from the family estate. Many prominent persons attended the funeral, so the time of the services was held back a bit to give the honored mourners ample time to arrive. The services began at two in the afternoon. It just so happened that a photographer, Cyril R. Corbett, had been engaged to take pictures of the family estate or Combermere's funeral. While unfortunate,
1: was perfectly timed, since
0: most of the household would be away at the church. Corbett set up an hour-long exposure in the library, confident that no one would wander and disturb the ongoing phot- photography project. Those days are over. Other projects came along, and Corbett didn't develop the plates she'd taken at, at, the, at the Abbey until August of the next year, eight months after she'd exposed them. To her astonishment, the photograph she took in the library showed a white, translucent figure in the, in the left side of the picture sitting in Lord Combermere's favorite chair. The apparition wasn't complete. There was a head sitting atop a clearly defined collar, a shoulder and a right arm and in a hand that rested lightly on the arm of the chair. Sybil Corbett checked her diary. Sure enough, the photograph had been taken on December 5th, the day of Lord Calvermore's funeral. She did some further investigating with the family and realized that the exposure had been made at 2 p.m., at the exact time the delayed funeral was being conducted. Skeptics argued that perhaps a servant had come into the library during the hour-long exposure, sat in the Lord's chair just long enough to register on the photographic plate then gotten up and left, but the family had agreed that the timing for the photography was, sadly, ideal, as most of the family and staff of the household would be at the church for the funeral. Besides, the ghostly figure in the pictures seemed to have a bald head and a light beard. According to Corbett's diary, the only men in the house at the time were her brother, the butler, and two footmen. All four men were young and beardless.
1: So it would seem that Lord Combermere, Com- Combermere,
0: returned to his library for one last rest in his favorite armchair before going on to an even more final rest. All right, the Brown Lady of Raynham Hall. Another startling ghost photograph comes from the, from another stately English home, Raynham Hall in Norfolk. This one might just be the most famous ghost photograph of all time. Raynham Hall was once the home of Lady Dorothy Townshend who married Miss Count Charles Townshend in 1713. As in many ghost stories, all was not peaceful country life at the hall. Lady Townshend died on March 29, 1726, at the age of 40, under mysterious circumstances. The official cause of death was smallpox. However, there were rumors that her ladyship had been pushed down the ground staircase and the fall had broken her neck. Yikes. During the Christmas season of 1835, a Colonel Loftus stayed at the random hall as a guest. His stay was interrupted by a nighttime visitation from a beautiful woman. The colonel described her as a noble-looking lady who was wearing a fashionable dress of brown satin. Her regal looks were spoiled, though, by the terrifying fact that she had no eyes. Only empty sockets gaped where her eyes should have been. Colonel Loftus made a sketch of his midnight visitor, and a portrait was painted from the sketch and hung in the guest bedroom, where the Brown Lady made most of her appearances. Parentheses. Decades earlier, in 1786, the future King George was a guest at the hall and stayed in the particular room. The Brown Lady's appearance sent the Prince Regent shrieking into the hallway in his nightshirt, a rather embarrassing situation for royalty. After that, he swore he would never set foot in Random Hall again. A promise he kept for the rest of his days." End parentheses. The Brown Lady continued her haunting of the hall well into the 20th century. On September 19, 1936, two photographers from the magazine Country Life were on assignment taking pictures of the Stately Hall. Indra Shearer was snapping the, the photos accompanied by, you know, by art director Captain Hubert Proven. Shearer and Proven were setting up a shot of the Grand Main staircase of the house at around 4 p.m. when Shira saw an ethereal veiled form coming slowly down the stairs. Proven didn't see a thing. He even bet Shira five quid that nothing weird would show up when the picture was developed. He lost the bet. The brown lady had exchanged her customary brown satin dress for a filmy white veil, but her form showed up distinctly in the picture. One of the most famous ghost photographs in the world ran for the first time in Country Life magazine, appropriately enough it ran in that year's december issue very cool
1: now i had the opportunity to travel to england
0: uh when i was about 12 i yeah 12 years old and we actually my family and i and my cousins hang on let me drink here got
1: to visit one of henry
0: the Eighth's castles okay and the tower of london and all that but we got to visit one of henry the eighth castles and it was a fascinating place and it was interesting because one of the stories that was told by the guides and my cousin was that henry the eighth was paranoid about being attacked and kidnapped at night so every night he would have the uh the uh royal uh bricklayer come in and brick him in so the, the so essentially when he went to bed the door to his the door to his chamber was bricked in so he couldn't get out. No one could get in. And this it's supposed to be a true story. The Ghost of Anne Boleyn. The Tower of London comes by its ghostly reputation, honestly. Built by William the Conqueror in 1078, it has stood as a symbol of the might of England for nearly a thousand years. It was originally a royal palace as well as a defensive fortress. In fact, Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress. The Tower of London, to use its proper name, is still officially a residence of the monarch. Now, we'll change this now, because it was the Queen's House. The King has a house on site called the King's House. The King's and Queen's of England realized quite soon after its construction that the tower was just as good at keeping people in as it was as keeping people out. So it has been used as a prison since, since the year 1100, when Reneff Flambard was imprisoned within the tower by Henry I. Flambard was also, by the way, the first person to escape from the tower. There have been many prisoners, royal, noble, and otherwise, who have met their ends either either on the Tower grounds or on nearby Tower Hill. Only seven people were executed within the Tower before the 20th century. One of these unfortunates was Anne Boleyn, the second wife of Henry VIII, who was beheaded for treason in 1536. Her ghost is said to haunt
1: the chapel of St. Peter,
0: Of Saint Peter, Peter ad Vincula, where she is buried. But she is also known to roam the grounds of the White Tower, carrying her own severed head. Anne Boleyn is arguably the most famous ghost who wanders the tower, due to her ill-fated relationship with Henry VIII. Queen Anne even almost got one poor sentry court-martialed. The guard was found unconscious at his post outside the king's house one winter morning in 1864. He was accused of falling asleep while on duty, and put on trial. At the hearing, though, the sentry had a really good explanation for his unconscious state. He had been standing guard when when a white figure came towards him out of the early morning mist. The sentry challenged the figure three times, but the silent figure never answered. It just kept walking slowly towards him. Alarmed, the sentry lunged at the figure with his bayonet fixed, intending to run it through, whatever it was but a flash of fire raced up the rifle barrel and knocked the sentry out cold. Luckily, other guards, including officers, came forward to testify at the hearing. They said they had seen the apparition, too, from a window in the bloody tower. After some discussion, members of the court realized that the phantasm had been seen by multiple witnesses just below the room where Anne had spent her last night alive, the night before her execution, May 19, 1536. The sentry was cleared. As for the doomed queen, she still wanders the tower with her head tucked underneath her arm, as far as anyone knows.
1: The Eileen Moore Lighthouse. Lighthouse
0: keepers are a sturdy, devoted breed, dedicated to the demanding job of keeping their lights burning to guide sailors safely to land. In fact, there is only one case on record of lighthouse keepers abandoning their post. The Island Moor lighthouse was built on a rocky island off the west coast of Scotland. It was a remote and forbidding place, even for a lonely lighthouse. That made the island, uh, this uh, E I L E A N, so if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, that made the Island more light even more ver- vital to the safety of those waters. The locals who lived on nearby islands believed that the, that the particular island was haunted. Only fools, they said, stayed on the island overnight. But the three men who had signed on as lighthouse keepers, of course, had no choice. This was their job, to stay on the island and tend the island more light. What happened to those men is still unknown. On the night of December 15, 1900, the, the brigantine Fairwind was making her way through the sea, seas near the island Moore lighthouse. Sailors on deck saw a lifeboat in the water. At first, they thought the boat was adrift, carrying corpses from a shipwreck. The bodies of the boat were pale, dressed in rags, but they were moving. The sailors on the Fairwind could see that the men in the lifeboat were rowing, and that they were heading for the lighthouse. The tiny craft, with its ghastly cargo, soon disappeared into the blackness. Later that same night a storm whipped up. Sailors on the one and other ships noticed that the Island more light was out. The ship's captains were furious at this oversight. Luckily no boats were wrecked in the stormy darkness. Days passed, and the lighthouse remained eerily dark. The sailors on passing ships began to be concerned. Something was definitely wrong. There were three men on the island. If one of them, or even two, had been taken ill, there still should have been a man left to restart the light. At the very least, they should have been able to send some sort of distress signal to ashore. To but the island stayed stubbornly shrouded in darkness. A supply ship finally made it out to the island to investigate on the day after Christmas. They found no sign of any of the three men and absolutely no clues as to where they had gone. The searchers found two strange things worth noting. The foul weather gear among the lighthouse supplies, the oilskin coats and heavy rubber boots, was all gone. The investigators also found shreds of seaweed scattered around. Not so unusual on an island, except that it was a kind unknown in that area. The searchers did find the lighthouse logbook. That provided no clues, but only deepened the mystery. The head keeper, Thomas Marshall, wrote that a vicious storm had pummeled the lighthouse for three days, beginning beginning December 12th. The log noted that the men spent those three days in a state of near panic, praying for their lives and crying. Strange behavior for stalwart lighthouse tenders. Had the desolation of their post made all three of the men snap, all at the same time? The final entry in the log was dated December 15th. Marshall wrote only this, quote, storm is ended, sea calm, God is over all, end quote. But here's the creepy part. Parentheses, besides the fact that the three men simply vanished, in parentheses, of the three days mentioned in the log, December 12th through the 15th, there was no storm. As a matter of fact, on the island of Lewis, just 20 miles away, the weather for those three days had been unusually calm. A storm had blown into the area on the night of December fifteenth. the day Marshall wrote that the seas were finally calm. The official inquiry into the desertion of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse was 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 unable to reach any conclusion as to the fate of Thomas Marshall and his two companions. But the sailors on board the Fairwind couldn't put the ghastly sight out of of the lifeboat with living corpses out of their minds. The boat that was being rowed steadily towards the lighthouse by dead men there was a local legend that said sometimes the ghost of, sh- of shipwrecked sailors came ashore to claim the living and here's the mystery of the mary celeste and i've read a lot about the mary celeste you know supposedly it disappeared or you know it was found as rifts in the Berm- just outside the, the that bermuda
1: triangle so let's see what
0: this mystery says on november seventh, eighteen seventy two, the merchant Brigantine Mary Celeste left the port of New York. She was bound for Genoa. I kind of missed my you know, I kinda miss my creaking chair. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> she, was, she was bound for Genoa, Italy with a cargo of alcohol meant to be added to wine to fortify it. Benjamin Spooner Briggs was her captain in charge of a crew of seven. Also on board were Captain Briggs' wife, Sarah, and their daughter Sophia Matilda, just two years old. On December 4th, the crew of the Daigratia saw the Mary Celeste, drifting in the Atlantic, 400 miles east of the Azores, sea, Bermuda Triangle area. She was full of cargo and carried six months' worth of food and water, but the ship's cat was the only living creature on board. Captain Briggs, his family, and the seven crew members were nowhere to be found. They
1: were never heard from again. The Palatine
0: Light The ghostly ship, known as the Palatine, has appeared for nearly 300 years in the waters off of Rhode Island. The eerie apparition has gained fame as the Palatine Light, and it usually manifests as a crimson glow on the horizon. The ship was probably a British vessel called the Princess Augusta. It left Rotterdam, Holland in August of 1738, carrying 240 passengers. Many of them were immigrants from the Palatine region of Germany headed for a new life in Philadelphia. A few weeks into the voyage, the supplies of fresh water somehow got contaminated, causing an outbreak of fever and diarrhea on board. Captain George Long died, as did seven crew members and more than half of the passengers. First mate Andrew Brooke took charge of the ship, and the immigrant's suffering began in earnest. The ship floundered around the Atlantic for an incredible three months after the contaminated water happened. Supplies of food and fresh water ran dangerously low. Brooke, now in charge, decided he could make a few bucks on the side by charging the passengers for the reason the amount of food they were given. The ship ran into storm after storm in the winter months, which pushed it even farther north. During Christmas week, the ship was caught in a vicious snowstorm somewhere in the Devil's Triangle. See, there you have it. You've got the Bermuda Triangle, there's a Devil's Triangle, they're all over the place. And this is, uh, quote, the region of the Rhode Island coast between Montauk Point, Block Island, and the mainland, end quote. The remaining crew just snapped. They plundered what they could from the ship, launched the ship's longboats, and abandoned the immigrants to their fate. The Princess Augusta, adrift without experienced sailors to man the tiller, tossed in the freezing waves until she beached herself on the rocky shore of Sandy Point on Block Island on December 27th. 20 more passengers died when the ship ran aground. The tragic event was immortalized in John Greenleaf Whittier's poem, The Palatine, written in 18, 1867. In the poem, the Block Islanders, who came down to the shore to investigate the wrecked ship, are portrayed as heartless looters, no better than the crew, who had abandoned the ship in the first place, finding nothing of value aboard the stricken ship. In the poem, the Islanders simply set the ship on fire and pushed it back into the sea, passengers and all. Fortunately, this is what actually happened. The story that Block Islanders prefer to tell is that they helped the 17 people left alive on the battered ship. The Islanders took the immigrants to Simon Simon Ray's farm, but the shipwreck and the the privation of the previous weeks had taken their toll. Some of the immigrants regained their health, but most of them were beyond saving. As for the ship itself, it wasn't worth repairing, as it was still sitting wrecked on the rocky shore. The islanders feared that it would become a hazard to navigation, so they set fire to it. A freak wind lifted the burning ship in, onto the swell of a wave and it drifted back out to sea. The ship would claim one more victim as it left the shore forever, though. One woman was still below decks when the ship was fired. Half crazed from the terror of the voyage, she refused to leave the burning deck. The islanders watched in horror as the mad woman was burned alive, her shrieks echoing into the night. And the ship is still seen even today. It manifests itself, it manifests between Christmas and New Year's Eve, usually on the anniversary of the fire. As reporter Edwin C. Hill wrote in 1934, quote, there are people living on Block Island who will tell you with their hand on the book that they have gazed seaward in the blackness of night, startled by a bright radiance of sea, and have watched with straining eyes while the palatine blazing from the trunk from Trunk to heel sun swept along the horizon. For many years, the abandoned woman's scream were said to accompany that queer crimson light on the darkening horizon, the light of the Palatine, forever burning yet never consumed.
1: Alright, that's it. We made it through the day. How's that grabby guys?
0: We did it. I did it. I didn't think I was gonna be able to do this today. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I appreciate it. And uh yeah I'm just glad I made it for you guys. So tomorrow now I will let you guys know an announcement if we decide to go down to old Sacramento. And like I said, you know, uh, she works. So uh, we have to get down there after she gets off work. So we will probably shoot for the 7 30 PM show out there. And if we don't, I'll let you know. And what we'll do is we'll do something fun tomorrow. Instead, you know, we'll go in the other office. And like I said, I've got, so I got some really cool things for Christmas that we can work on together. Light brights and, I got, I got that Disney Light Bright, you know, I got some Legos to work on. So you guys can like join me with that. We can chit chat while I do it. But uh, thank you all. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for being so patient tonight. I really appreciate it. And I'm just surprised there's as many of you here as there are because I did not get this show teased out until after 5 45 tonight. So I'm really impressed with that. Thank you so much. Let me see some comments here. Before
1: I go, blow this up. Okay, through that one winter, see over here. Absolutely. Daughter pass can get really interesting in the winter. I agree with that. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. All right. So that's it for tonight. And we will continue, you know, one way or another Um, if I don't go live tomorrow. We will continue with the book. We'll see how that goes tomorrow. And, uh, you know, if we, you know, what I might do is because I had planned to go do something maybe after the show this week. So if we don't go tomorrow to do the live, uh, we're going to go Saturday, obviously going to go down Saturday to do the live down there. Uh, But I will, you know, like I said, I'll I'll read the book and then after we'll do something else for fun. You know, we'll go build something. I've got some gingerbread cookies to decorate, and all kinds of stuff that that we can do together. Okay, so we'll go ahead and do that tomorrow. So we'll have a double tomorrow, no matter what. All right, I want to thank you all, and I will see you tomorrow. I appreciate it. if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies for equal opportunity here at California House Radio. Just trying to get the word out about our little, little show, and uh, yeah. I'm just really excited, and I'm looking forward to the new year so we can start doing some different things, better things with the show, making it better every year, every year, every year. All right, guys, thank you very much, and I will see you tomorrow one way or another, uh, either 6.30 or 7.30. Bye.